Thank you for listening to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast from Asheville, North Carolina. For more information on Trinity Baptist Church, please visit tbcashville.org. Or to learn more about our senior pastor, Dr. Ralph Sexton, please visit ralphsextonministries.com. The speaker for today is our senior pastor, Dr. Ralph Sexton. Take your Bible and turn with me to Acts 17, part 4 now, tonight. We're coming down to the end of this chapter. And you say, Pastor Ralph, why have we stayed in Acts 17 so long? This is a very, very important chapter because we have the Apostle Paul uh, going into Athens, Greece. Now, you remember uh, he traveled from Philippi, if you still have your map, we gave out earlier in this Bible study, and he went 33 miles southwest to Amphipolis. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but 2,000 years ago, 33 miles was quite a territory. And then he's also about 30 miles west of Thessalonica. And that's today uh, Salonica, Greece, okay? Now, he arrived in Thessalonica... Uh, and went to the synagogue, chapter 16, uh, and Paul and Silas. And then in verse, what was it, number 6? That's one of those good verses, I believe it is. Uh, it talked about the, they were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word of God in Asia. And then it says uh, in verse 7, the Spirit suffered them not. And Paul is being dealt with by the Holy Spirit. And it, we know that it's not an, an agenda or something he wrote down on a piece of parchment. He was being led by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 12, then they end up in uh, Philippi. Now, when you get over into uh, chapter uh, 17... And we look at what happened after they come to Thessalonica. We have the friendship of Jason. And then uh, verse 6 says, These are they that have turned the world upside down. In other words, in chapter 17, we know that God put them there from what we studied in 16 and that there's no doubt about the hand of God guiding them to this location. It's an interesting study when you begin to look at Jason. Uh, he befriended them, brought them in, and the city turned on Jason, and uh, they actually arrested him. But it's also a plan of the Lord. If, if we go quickly to our board, and we know that this, this whole book is Acts, the church. It's the actions uh, of the, the people as we begin the church. We're leaving the synagogue worship. They're being converted. That You notice every chapter, where does Paul go? Church. Synagogue, 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 synagogue. And they become believers and they form, do what? They start a church, they start a church, they start a church because they're out of law and they're under grace. And so... In Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, we have this outline of the king presenting the kingdom. 
We've got the servant serving, serving and suffering. And then we've got for 33 and a half years, the Lord Jesus Christ, the man, that's the real. And this is what Paul's dealing with is the reveal. He's saying, I'm gonna, what causes him problems everywhere he goes? When he starts preaching Jesus Christ and the resurrection, that gets him in trouble. And then, so I've got the king, I've got the servant, I've got the man, and I've got God manifest. And he's proven to them that Jesus is the Son of God. All right? From Acts chapter 2, verse 5 to the end of the book, we've got the church witnessing. And they're witnessing in Africa and Europe, in big cities like Athens and Rome and Jerusalem and Caesarea. So the gospel's going out. Our church is, has a vital part of missions as our ministries. We are a mission-hearted church. We focus on local ministries like Celebrate Recovery, Awana Ministry, our teens, our educational trips, uh, just like he just mentioned. But then we're big on foreign mission because we believe that the way to get the gospel out is to reach nationals, listen to me, nationals that can reach their people. Any one of these countries we have missionaries in, they can have a revolution, a political upheaval, a new administration of government, and they'll say we want all the foreigners, all the missionaries, that's a cover word, foreigners to leave, and the missionaries have to go. But if we've invested in nationals, uh, like we did Rudy there in Honduras, like we're doing Bob in, uh, down in Haiti, uh, like you're doing uh, Dwight in Nicaragua, and now what uh, we're seeing our own uh, brother Mark do in Pakistan and in very difficult places like Dubai, that if they say no more foreigners, that's okay. We've got nationals in there, then so foreign missions is a very large focus of what we do. Many of the projects that we do mission-wise is to emphasize this foreign part of our mission work. Something you don't necessarily see here in the building, but the footprint's there. So this is, this is what we're dealing with, the church witnessing. Where? Number one, in your notes, you can put the church's witnessing in Jerusalem. Number two, the church's witnessing in Judea and Samaria, all right? So that's Asheville and Buncombe County. And then, where's the church witnessing? Number three, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So that's our ministry project we're doing right now in South Korea. You say, well, Brother Ralph, hasn't South Korea had the gospel? Sure, South Korea and Philippines have both had the gospel. But both those nations are now mission senders Number one in the world for sending is South Korea. Number two is the Philippines. So we strengthen the church in those foreign countries as they go out. And look at the target zone that we've got with the Philippines targeting Thailand and Cambodia and that part of the world. And you've got South Korea targeting what? North Korea, which is a barren desert for the gospel, and that big, big, big nation of China. And China's being rattled 
to its very core right now. They're being rattled with, with, you know, when you start talking about 2,000 people have already died with coronavirus and they can't get a rope around it, it's like a wild horse, they can't rope it in, then you begin to see the value of having people of faith that we can invest in and help in. And I believe right now, this is Ralphology, but I believe God's going to use some of these uh, catastrophes to crack the door, the bamboo door that we can get the gospel in. I really believe that. I believe God's, uh, the devil thought he meant it for harm, but I believe God can take that. And as we get aid and, and workers in, uh, and, and, and what about how brave are those health workers there in China? You think about that. I mean, the director of the hospital passed away today there in Wuhan. The very guy that was over all that hospital, he, he gave his life helping other people. The, the head doctor there, he gave his life. The doctor that discovered the disease, yeah. So, uh, so all of this acts is so important, and that's why we're taking such uh, meticulous time for this to soak in. Uh, the church is witnessing in Jerusalem. This is right here in our neighborhood. It's right here, West Asheville, right? Uh, in Judea, Samaria. This is Asheville, Buncombe County, North Carolina. This is our country. And to the uttermost parts of the earth. So God's saying, you take your skill set and you do that. And uh, let me turn this around a little bit so the camera can get it. And uh, you can also see here. Thank you, buddy. You can see... Then Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes to the Jews. And then in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles. The dramatic event that happened in Acts chapter 2, most people read right over this and they don't pay any attention to it, but God did the very same thing to the Gentiles. He did it in Acts 2, Cornelius, there at Caesarea by the sea. So uh, what God's saying is, I'm not going to hold back this power and this presence. You'll have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit for the Jew and for the Gentile. And Jesus and the disciples, Acts 3, and then we see this begin with the God working in the temple, with the Jews, and then in the synagogue. And what I've done here now is I've outlined 17 chapters for you uh, and we're right here now to chapter 17, Athens and the home of the unknown God, which is Mars Hill. And, you know, uh, Brother Donnie mentioned that we want to have this study on our heritage in America next year. And so one of the things we're doing this year is we're doing our heritage on Paul because we're teaching it verse by verse. And so... Uh, later in the year, we'll actually go to Greece and we'll go to Athens and I will preach on Mars Hill to all those that are with us as we study together. So uh, this will be part of this following it to life. There's something about visually connecting and that's why we emphasize so much these visual messages because if you can see it, 
you can associate it to a living scripture, then it'll stay in your heart because you've had the eye gate as well as the ear gate. Every Sunday's the ear gate. And psychologists say, if you hear me teach, you'll retain um, approximately 10%. But if I can put a visual somehow with what you're hearing, the retention rate can go up to 70, 75% because we tied ear gate and eye gate together. So that's why our children's ministries are so important in the life of this church, that we have important development in the life of those children that they're being stimulated eye gate and ear gate about the things of Christ and that we, we do it in Sunday school, we do it in Awana ministries, we do it in fun and activities. Why? We want them to know that this book, the book of Acts and the word of God is life and light for their future. And so we make that investment together. Now, in uh, verse number 10, uh, look what it says. Uh, Paul and Silas are protected in Acts 17, and they're sent away to Berea. And again, they go to the synagogue to teach. And then we go, uh, verse 11, uh, we find out that these people are more noble in Thessalonica. Now, that Greek word there, noble, uh, is the Greek word, Eugenes, and it actually means, if you're reading it in the Greek New Testament, it's saying that it's uh, well-born or better educated. And so they were making a distinction in the Word of God that where Paul is now moved to, it's more of a cultural city, and, the, and it actually, in, you know, the Greek language has multiple layers of of meanings, and it actually, one of the layers talks about being uh, more courteous or a better disposition. All right, you go to verse 12, and this is where we meet the honorable women in verse number 12. Uh, Therefore, many of them believe also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men. And then notice that phrase, not a few. It means a lot of people became believers. Ladies, I cannot emphasize for you enough the power of your influence. Do not read right over this verse and miss the fact that you're mentioned first. The honorable women believed first. Look what happened. Also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men. You know why, ladies? Because God uses the woman to be the heart. You are the tender part. Men, we're, we're marked and we're hampered by our egos. Listen to me. And we can just look at a guy and say, well, I ain't like him, I'm going to listen to him. And we're going down the road. But a woman is more thoughtful and more uh, taking into heart and listening. And the Word of God mentions the power of the women. Now, if you don't think you're powerful, ladies, let me, uh, how many of you women have curtains in your house? Window shades, curtains, some kind of dress, all right? All right? 
If it wasn't for you, we men would still be living in a cave. And there wouldn't be any curtains. Girls thought up curtains. What use do curtains have? None whatsoever. They're non-functional. They're decorative. It brings life and light to this room. I love it so. I like to pull back softly with a bow, don't you? Okay. We'd still be in caves. Listen, God put a man and a woman together. That's God's idea. Right? And he had a reason for that. And God in this word, he, you find it over and over, he emphasizes the power of the women. There's no second class citizenship in the word of God for women. God has elevated the woman. Christ made sure that the woman was elevated. And under the law, she was segregated and separated. Under the law, women had to sit on one side of the church, the men on the other side of the church. Do you understand that? And God took all those barriers away. Why? He's saying, I'm taking away the wall. I'm taking that partition away. And grace is going to do that. And, and he said, and the woman will be the heart. She'll be a type of the Holy Spirit in the home. And, and the man will remain that element of representation of law. Isn't that something? And all that's tied together. But I wanted you to see in this verse that the women are mentioned first and they believe first and they went home and they talked to the husbands and said, well, you know what? You ought to think about what he said. Well, I don't like, well, think about it, big boy. You ever had one of those big boy speeches? Yeah. It got really quiet over at Trinity. Verse 13, big boy. And when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also. And what? Stirred up the people. Their jealousy and their aggravating ways, they said, I'm not going to leave that alone. I don't like him. And here again is that resentful attitude. Okay? Verse 14. Then those then helped Paul out of town and they took him to Athens. Now, we come to verse 16 and it says why Paul waited. The people that helped him in verse 15, they moved him from where he was all the way to Athens. Now, when he gets there, he's by himself because Silas didn't come. But he sent word and you'll notice it says in verse 15, he said, uh, receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus, which is Timothy, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now you can't catch a train or a plane. So all speed means that they've got to make as passage as fast, fast as way possible, whether it's over land or over sea. So that's... That's what it is. So obviously, now what's going to happen? Paul is in Athens all by himself. 
Now he's going to walk around. But you know what? God has a plan. God has an appointment. And Galatians 4, 4 in the fullness of time. It wasn't an accident that Paul was there without him. So why? Because he gets to walk around. He gets to view everything. He gets to blend into the crowd. He gets to observe how do they worship. And what are they worshiping? So here's where they go in there together. Now, uh, look at verse 16. And while Paul waited for them, that's Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. Now, Pastor Nathan, when you talk about revival and something's on your heart, you talk about a future and, and making sure that we understand something stirs in your heart. You can't sometimes even verbalize it. But you know that that's what God wants. You know that's what God's called you to do. Now look what happened here. It says in verse 16, it said, It stirred in him, and when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now if you're making notes, there's two or three things you want to write down in these couple of verses. Number one, why Paul waited... His, stir, his spirit was stirred within him. What's another word we use at church for that? Somebody's under a burden. They get a burden. A lot of you are in the ministry you're in because God gave you a burden. You didn't sign up for it. You didn't want to do it. But God put his hand up and said, I need you. And you got a burden. You understand that? Some of you are greeters and ushers and parkers and nursery workers, and there's no way. I got tickled today listening. One of the people running for the uh, presidency of the United States uh, was spoke very demeaning uh, about being a farmer, very derogatory about being a farmer, and said, well, there's nothing to it, uh, you just make a hole, put corn in it, cover it up, and, and then corn jumps out of the ground. Well, uh, all day long, farmers have called talk-in radio stations. And they've had a word or two. And everyone, you know, everyone I heard today talked about the only reason I farm is because it's my passion. Something stirred within me. My great-grandfather was a farmer. My grandfather was a farmer. My daddy was a farmer. I wanted to love the land and I didn't want our family to lose the farm that God gave us. It's passion. And he said, I'd like to see one of those political candidates keep up with me. He was from Nebraska. He said, I plant 30 acres an hour. He said, 30 acres. Well, they got some big tractors and they're serious about putting some corn in the ground and taking care of him. He said, and we work 18 hours a day. You know? And then the next caller was a man, and he was a dairy farmer. And he said, he said, I work 18 hours a day too, but I have to do it seven days a week because the cows don't take a day off. And he said, and I've got to feed and milk twice a day. And he said, we, uh, I got 200 head of cattle, and he said, we produce 3,400 gallons of milk a day. And he said, and the next time one of those guys want to make a speech, I hope they do it with a mouthful of food that us farmers grew for them. And I thought, amen for that hard work. Amen. 
because it's, it's a different world. Well, when we come to these passages of Scripture, this, and it's in Paul, God's already called him to preach. God's already called him to defend the gospel and present the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for him, it was like what we heard on the news today. He was walking around the city and it was like somebody making fun of being a farmer. And instead he see all, sees all these false gods and it's like, you're making fun of my Jesus. You're making fun of the call of a holy God. And there's a living God. And it stirred up within him. And he had already sent for reinforcements. But you've got to pick up on the energy of what was going on. All right? And he's greatly concerned. And this passion becomes pity and distress. There's two reasons. You can write these down. The reason Paul was disturbed, he was number one, he was distressed at the folly of the people. He's thinking, how could you intelligent people be so foolish as to think you can take a piece of rock, carve out an image, and stick some colored rocks in there for eyes and think that that's going to help you? You just made it. You just carved it. How's that going to help you? The folly of it. It distressed him. Number two, then it also distressed him at the great danger the people of Athens were facing. Brother Dwight, I don't know if you remember, but during the tsunami rescue when we were doing the water filtering plants and we were putting them on that big plane and those filtering plants, they fit in the back of a pickup truck. They're $10,000 a filter. And we had raised the money to buy five of them and... Uh, Franklin Graham was gracious enough to fly our filters over there uh, to, wh where were they going, Sumatria? And, uh, and, and while we were seeing all these uh, uh, images of what the tsunami had done, and not one of the most powerful things that stirred me, like Paul, was this village and all the vegetations off the trees and the the houses are gone and families are missing. And then where the water had stopped, there was also the village uh, council or circle for this community. And they had a, a big idol. And the idol had been knocked down by the force of the tsunami and it's on the ground. And instead of looking for loved ones, instead of rebuilding houses, the whole village was down there trying to put that God back together. And they were working feverishly and they were trying to, to put him back together so they could raise him up. And underneath, it was talking about the reporter that was there making the photograph. He said, they're working feverishly to restore the God of protection for their village. Well, how'd that work out for you? You see... Uh, and that's what was stirring Paul up, the foolishness of it, the danger of it. And, and, and it goes on to this verse to say that the city was wholly given to idolatry. And that word holy in the Greek New Testament means full of idols. Everywhere, full of idols. And this word is not used. I thought that was interesting, that Greek word. 
It's not used any other place in the New Testament but right here. It has to do with a saturation. It has to do with the penetration. It has to do with the completeness that this city, Athens, was completely carpeted, taken over with false gods. And Paul had never seen this type of wickedness. It's dealing with the condition of the city. It means holy given, full of idols. It also means consumed in lies. Oh, you talk about false news or fake news. Everything religious was consumed in lies. Following false gods to be lost forever. Now there's three things you want to write down about these idol worshipers in Greece. And the reason you need to write them down is because you need to think about our culture and what's offered. If you don't think we got a problem, go to any restaurant in this town. And when you come out of the restaurant, there's all these news boxes and free newspapers. And just pick you up three or four of them and read about all the false gods in our community. Right here in western North Carolina. Just take some of those newspapers home and read about them. They're there. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul was stirred up about. And listen to three things about those people. And you think about these three things and how they fit for us today. Number one, all those people were sincere. They were sincere. I was in a meeting in downtown Asheville a couple of years ago of religious leaders. And I was rebuked when I said something in the name of Jesus. And this person a couple of chairs over said, well, this is a a circle of unity and tolerance. And said, you just need to understand that all paths lead to God just so you're sincere. (laughs) Sit down, Ralph. And I said very quietly after I caught myself, well, that's your opinion. But God's opinion is that no man will see the Father except through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's not a religious group. That's not a a meeting or a council. That's the Word of God. And, And that's what it's about. So sincerity is not salvation. That's what you need to make in your notes. Number two, this group was religious. They were religious. They had manufactured religions for different gods. And so they they had religion, but they did not have salvation. And the third thing that they had, according to the Apostle Paul, was they had ritual. They had specific festivals, calendars that they kept. Some were on a relationship of stars and the moon. Others had to do with seasons and harvest, but they had rituals. So three things, sincere, number two, religious, number three, ritual. And none of those things will save you. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with secular writers or historians, but Ponsanius in his writings, he put, Athenians are greatly surpassed in others 
in their zeal for religion. Lucian in his writing said, on every side of the streets there are altars and victims and temples and festivals. These aren't preachers. These are secular historians and writers. Livy in his writing said, uh, Athens was full of the images of gods and men adorned with every variety of material and with all the masterful skill of artists. Petronius wrote, tongue-in-cheek, I might add, it was easier to find a god than to find a man in Athens. There were so many false gods. Athens had three elements, ladies and gentlemen. Athens was splendid in architecture, it was brilliant in science, and it was beautiful in the arts. Not only the most wonderful city in the nation of Greece, but even greater than any other city in the world. And some of these secular writers said probably double, far excelled in art, in science, in philosophies than any other city from the great civilizations of Egypt and all that had been discovered up to this time. You, you can't imagine this city-state Athens, how powerful and how rich it was. And think about it. The whole city was there with gods that they had created by their own hands. The, they manufactured their own religion. They manufactured their own God. And therefore, they were trying to have their own salvations. The families of Athens, let's talk about the families, the people on the pew. They were living in wealth. They were enjoying splendor. They were enjoying the buildings and the beauty of gardens. And they were masters of, no will, of the knowledge of that day. You think about all the knowledge of astronomy, everything that had come in there to science. The Athens, the, the Athenians, these people mastered every knowledge. They knew it all. The palaces. Think about the statuary of Athens. They had the ability to make dead, cold stone look alive. They had the most beautiful artist in the world. But yet, with that statuary, they could not re-give life to their own selves and to their own building. Their culture and city itself is guilty before a holy God, the true and living God of several things. Living lost, without redemption, drowning a culture with sin-sick souls, desperately grasping at false dreams, false gods, meaningless rituals, and for the salvation of their own souls, it's like a drowning man grabbing at a toothpick, saying, this will hold me up when the storms of life come. What's Paul building us up to? What's he building us up to? The total depravity of man. That's what he's teaching us. He's teaching us that man cannot earn his own salvation. He's getting you to see they're lost, boys and girls. He's getting you to understand they've got everything. They've got money, wealth, wisdom, and they cannot redeem themselves. And he's de beautifully describing the total depravity of a human soul. 
Verse 17, what happened? Therefore disputed he. That means he reasoned. And, and listen, those perishable stone and marble idols are unable to redeem one dying man or one dying soul. What if your mother was dying? What if your daughter was dying and you went out in the marketplace and bought an idol and laid it beside your dying mother, your dying child, and said, I don't want you to go into eternity afraid and lost. And that's what Paul's describing. He's putting it in eloquent terms. And then what about the wisdom of Paul? What does it say in that same verse? Where does he go to preach? Where does he go to reason? Where does he go to debate? He goes to the market. He goes to where the people are. That's where they go to buy their produce, their bread. That's where they go to talk. He went to the people. Verse 18, he even went to the sophisticates of that place. He went to certain philosophers. And Athens was distinguished not only among the world with its art and science and all that they had, but he also was known, the city was known for its philosophers. Two main groups were located there, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And about 300 years before Christ was born, then you're going to uh, meet uh, Epicurus, and that was about 300 years. And then the Stoics were there as well. Now, their philosophies were different, but they had big followings. Now, just for you to understand what Paul's up against, uh, the Epicureans, they denied that the creation was made by God. They denied the immortality of the soul. And the main doctrine of Epicurus was by pleasure was the summa abonum. It was the chief good that... Uh, the, if you wanted to be a successful life, then you would have pleasure. Would be That was what he was all about. And it, you should practice only Epicurean thought on your road to having more pleasure. And they devoted their life completely to self-satisfaction. They were the ultimate selfie generation. They were all about... Uh, sensuality and gratification of the moment. And happiness was produced in their lives by indulgence and effemacy and all passions likewise. The Stoics, however, were very stern. That comes from the, uh, the Stoics come from the Greek word stoa. And that word means porch or portico. Uh, if this were a street in Athens, Greece, this outcropping here would be a stoa, S-T-O-A. And this would be a porch off of our building. And so the man, Zeno, who was the father of the Stoics, he conducted class and taught every day on his stoa. And so that's where the name comes from. They're followers of the man that teaches on the porch. Stoics. Okay, does that make sense? So Paul's up against them. How's he going to overcome these great philosophers? Their might, their wisdom, their following, 
all those that are around them. You see, uh, and what are they already throwing at Paul? Look at verse 18. What are they already saying about Paul? They're saying, what will this babbler say? What will this babbler say? By the way, that word babbler, for you Greek students, that's another word that's never found in the New Testament again. It's the only time that it's found in that frame or usage. Uh, it means uh, actually in the Greek, a base fellow, a base fellow. So they're calling him this in scorn and contempt. That's what they're doing. They're trying to uh, discredit him. Don't listen to him. He's uneducated. He doesn't have knowledge. Uh, the secondary meaning of that word babbler is the word one who collects seeds. And that didn't make a bit of sense to me. Uh, I'm thinking, well, what does that have to do? But what it is is a disrespectful remark to somebody that's extremely poor and that the only job they can find is that when they finish the harvest, they go walk in the fields and they pick up seeds. He's one who collects seeds. He doesn't have a job. He's not worthy. He can't think. He, he's limited in his ability to acquire knowledge. It's a very disrespectful term. And the secondary part of that one who collects seeds, the babbler part, is that he's like the birds, the crows. Squawk, 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 squawk. And that's all you hear. Just gets, he's a noisome irritation in the background. Don't listen to him. Man, they're cutting the legs off Paul. How's Paul going to reach them? How's Paul going to talk to them? He's, we're finding out they're rich and need of nothing. Sounds like America. Huh? Sounds like they've got everything figured out. They don't need anything. So what's Paul going to be able to do? Well, Paul's got to have something. They bring him to the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, verse 19. And the reason they brought him up there is important. That's the place of the court. The supreme judges of Athens, the best judges, were there. And it was on a hill in the middle of the city. It's the final court of appeal. Verses 20 and 21, then they say he's saying strange things, things we've never heard before. And why do they go, uh, all the Athenians, why do they go there on verse 20 and 21? It's because when you go to Mars Hill, what's the thing they want? They want something new, new knowledge, but it's also they want gossip. They love gossip. They went to Mars Hill for Facebook. They had Facebook, and they only, and, but you had to go pick it up. So they went to Mars Hill to Facebook. That was their social network. So they went there for gossip. I'm going to stop there because... I'm going to say, think about what a hopeless situation Paul's in, but he's getting ready to drop the hammer, and he's going to preach with authority and clarity, and he, God's going to use him in a mighty way. And what's Paul going to prove? You can't reach them. They're totally lost. They can't redeem themselves. What does Paul have to have? Power of God. What have we got to have on our lives? Power of God. We've got to have the abiding, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. We've got to be men and women of prayer. 
We've got to pray one for another. We've got to pray for our children. We've got to hedge them in. We've got to hedge this church in. And we've got to be students of the book. Amen? Father, bless your word. Bless the reading of your word. May we truly strive like the Bereans to be students of the book. Students of the word. Christ's name. Amen and amen. Thank you for being with us today. I pray that today God spoke to your heart. You know, it's one thing to hear Ralph talk. It's one thing to hear a choir sing. It's one thing to hear a group bring a special song presentation. But it's altogether different when you're sitting there in that hotel room, in your house, maybe listening on your phone while you're at work, and God speaks to your heart. That's not me. That's not a Baptist, a Methodist, or a Presbyterian church. That's God. That's personal. That's you. And the Bible teaches quite clearly that when God touches your heart, when He speaks to you, that you can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Bible teaches that all of us have to have Him. You say, well, Brother Ralph, your dad was a preacher. My dad being a preacher couldn't help me. Well, you say your mama taught Sunday school and she prayed. That couldn't help me. The Bible says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says, not me, not the Baptist, the Bible says that there's none righteous, though not one. Today is the day of salvation. You can begin anew. It can start over. The past can be covered by the blood. You can get out of living in your rearview mirror, the guilt, the problems. God can forgive you and you can start over today. You say, Brother Ralph, how is that possible? Well, a simple prayer is that very beginning. God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. And I promise you, God, from this day forward, I'll serve you with the rest of my life. You can begin again in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to read your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you call us, you write to us. We'll send you a copy of the Word of God. And I want to encourage you to get into a local church, a church in your community, that you can have a fellowship of faith that will help you grow and teach you about the Word of God. Today's the day of salvation. This is the first day of the rest of your life. Let's serve the Lord together and let's meet each other in heaven. I'll be praying for you and I ask you to pray for me.